Father, I thank you for every single soul that is in this auditorium and every single soul that's watching online right now. I know that we are precious to you. You see us that way. And what we're about to look at emphasizes that. God, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us a capacity to see how this is going to speak specifically to our lives, that we might speak into the lives of other people, that you might encourage us, and that we would be reminded once again what you've done for us. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. All the biblical prophecies speak very consistently of a hope, a hope that would be fulfilled. Old Testament and New Testament. Let me show you an example of that. It says in Matthew 12, and then also in Isaiah 11, and then also in Romans 15, in His name, the nations will put their hope. And we have to be really careful about how we use the word hope, because the way that we use it in our society today, it's very dangerous. The way we use hope, it will mess with your emotions. Like if we say, I hope that this is the year the Detroit Lions finally get into the Super Bowl. All right? Are you tracking with me? It'll mess with your emotions. It'd be great if they did. But you have to be very, very careful about how you use the word hope. You don't want to put your hope there. Now, I think we probably could today because they won, right? Right? Okay, okay. That's cool. You guys are going to applaud that. <laughs> that's so fun. Okay. So, but the Bible does this. The, the Bible defines hope completely differently than our culture. It actually defines it this way. I want you to see this on the screen. It defines it as that which has been promised but not yet realized. And that's true because of the source. The source is God. God is the one who makes the promise. And so your hope has great confidence that it's going to be fulfilled. So there's actually, with a biblical hope, there's more of a sense of expectation. It's just something that hasn't happened yet. Well, throughout Scripture, what you find is there's this seed of expectation that's been planted that one day there will be this one coming. So those who were created in God's image, God says to those imagers, and that's all of us, by the way, to those of us who are created in God's image, we're supposed to be looking forward to the arrival of the one who will bring a restoration. Now, that is a massive promise. That's a, a megas promise according to what Scripture says. So Matthew 12 and Isaiah 11 and Romans 15 all use that phrase, name. In His name, the nations will put their hope. Now, it's not talking about the name Jesus. It's not even talking about the name Emmanuel. Actually, it's talking about the character. In the character of that one, the nations will put their hope. Now, I know of no world leader or religious leader, political on any level, of whom that could actually be said. There is no one but one of whom that promise could actually be said. That's why it's so monumental when it says, in His name, His character, the nations will put their hope. And it's not speaking about governments. It's speaking of ethnos, of races, of people groups. They will put their hope in Him. Hope for what? What are you hoping for this evening? Here's what we're all hoping for, whether we would admit it or not. Every one of us is hoping in the back of our mind that we would be good enough 
that we would measure up to God's standards. And it especially surfaces on our deathbed. We hope that we will measure up to the standard that God has for people to be restored to Him. That's what we all secretly hope for, a hope to be good enough. Well, that takes us to the Luke chapter 2 story, and we could dive right in because it's super familiar to us. You know it's no secret whatsoever that everything changes when hope arrives and puts on flesh and enters into our world. And so to put an exclamation point on that arrival, God sends blazing angels streaking across the universe to arrive here on our planet. Now, only moments earlier, those same beings, those magnificent beings, they stood in the throne room of God in the midst of the Shekinah glory that surrounds God the Father. And so when they arrive on planet Earth, they're still glowing with the illumination. And everything around them is bathed in the Shekinah glory. And they arrive on this planet to declare God's eternal purpose, that an invitation has been extended to His imagers, to those who were created in His image. The invitation is extended to be restored to Him. Now, we understand, if you've grown up in church, you know this, but if you're new to church, you need to know this. The events that are unfolding in Luke chapter 2, they are not God's reaction to things going bad on planet Earth, as though God's freaking out and He doesn't know what to do, so He sends Jesus to rescue. No, actually what the Bible says is this is a plan that was put in place before the foundations of the world. It's actually the fulfillment of a plan. So that means when a politician in Rome changes the law and issues a decree, that Caesar, although he doesn't know it, is actually fulfilling God's promise to planet Earth. He's just a participant. So go with me to Luke chapter 2, and it reads this way in verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. But Caesar doesn't know that he's participating in God's plan. So verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of, and it's speaking of King David here, of David. So there's the decree. What Caesar wants? He wants a population inventory because Caesar wants more money, so he wants to increase the taxes. So we find God working through the wheels of government in order to set in motion the wheels of grace, amazing grace. And a young couple from backwater Israel with nothing to their name picks up whatever they have, and they set a course and head out for a sleepy little village called Bethlehem because that's the rule, that's what they have to do. So then comes verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds, some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now nighttime in pasture lands brings a very familiar practice, building a modest fire to keep warm by. And typically the youngest among them would be sent out to gather firewood while the older ones would be bedding down the sheep. And so the hillside is covered with hundreds of sheep resting on a hillside. And except for an occasional bleat, it's a very silent night. The stars are sharp in the Middle Eastern sky. 
Occasionally, they glance up and look at them, but mostly they're watching their sheep. They're keeping watch over their flocks for wolves that might come in among them. And below them is a very quiet village, and they can see flickering lamps in the windows of small homes. The men speak softly in silent tones. Their hushed voices soothe the animals. Eventually, even the shepherds' voices fall silent, and they gather up the collars around their neck and their cloak. They attempt to stay warm in the chill of the night, but to no avail. It still cuts right through to them. It's a very meager attempt for people who live out in the wilderness. So push down on verse 8 with me. Verse 8 again, it says, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields. Now, living outside of town is a drag. It's a really rough life because in the first century, nobody is showing up to hang out with the shepherds. Nobody's inviting them to the Christmas parties. They have like three followers on their Instagram account. They're not popular people. And one of the three followers is their mom. It's just a really hard life. Shepherding was so despised that fathers refused to teach this trade to their sons. It was a job you only took if you couldn't get a job doing anything else. Their work made them ceremonially unclean, so they were not welcome in the synagogue. And they didn't want to leave their flocks because they would get in trouble if they did, so they rarely made it to church. And when they did show up, they really stunk physically because they've been hanging around sheep for months on end. And the trade itself lent itself to dishonesty. They were considered thieves. So they live months out in the wilderness without any supervision whatsoever. They're often accused of stealing the inventory. And there's actually a law on the books in the first century that forbids people from buying wool from shepherds because there's a chance that it was stolen. So they're just hourly workers. And verse 8 says they're out in the fields, which means from March to November. From March to November, they're living most of the year away from all of the townspeople, which makes them social outcast. And then comes verse 9. And verse 9 reads this way, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. So in a flash, the hillside is flooded with brilliant light. And this is not just any light. 100,000, 100 million LED bulbs could not possibly match the brightness of what's being described here. Paralempo is the Greek word that's actually used to describe this. And it, it means to illuminate all the way around a halo of light. There is no shadow whatsoever in this light. It is that brilliant. And though initially they're blinded by the extreme intensity, they can see a figure, a figure of what almost looks like a human, yet somehow different. A single being appears with luminous armor, somehow transparent. Daniel describes them this way, with almost a burnished appearance to them. And this single being towers over them, yet it's immediately right in front of them. And we see that in verse 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now catch this. In one moment, they're speaking in hushed tones. They're whispering to each other. 
and the blackness of the night encompasses them. And then there's an explosion of light. And this is just one angel. And immediately they're in terror. Fortunately, we have some descriptions in the Bible of what they're actually seeing. And there's a very brief description from Daniel chapter 10. Here's just a sentence for you. Daniel describes it this way. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming like torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. That's talking about thunder, by the way. Like a waterfall. That's the sound of the voice when they speak. And it's not just the angel's appearance that's terrifying them. Because with the angel is the visible Shekinah glory of God. And it's not at a distance. It's written in the Greek language that it's right up front. It's in their face. So Luke chapter 2 captures it. The, the reaction is predictable. It's a horrifying fear, literally megasphere, like off the charts, which is a natural reaction when someone is brought into the presence of God. It's consistent all the way throughout the Bible. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's something that's been planned for you. You outcast of society. You've been living your whole life out in the wilderness, away from all the townspeople, and there's something that's been planned for you from before the foundation of the world. This angel is declaring that the time has arrived. Tonight begins the consummation of the ages. And this angel scores the greatest assignment ever given to any angel. He is the first one to bring the gospel. And I want you to notice how personal it is. I bring you good news. He's talking to people who do not get invitations. I bring you good news. Evangelizo in the Greek language, evangelizo. I, I get to evangelize you. He's the first evangelist, and it's pertaining specifically to the gospel. You notice how personable it is, but also how broad it is. This is for all the people, not just the A-listers and not just the good people, but to all the people, everyone on the planet, from Adam to Noah. From your next-door neighbor to your dearest friend. From the homeless guy on the corner down by the mall to the White House. It's for everyone. It's available to everyone. And this joy is intensified by the statement when he uses the word megas, great joy, megas joy. It's awesome. This is fantastic news. Now, how magnificent is this? If you are the one who's been separated from God, how magnificent is this if you're the one living on the outskirts of society, if you don't fit in, if you don't measure up? Here's a reality. As imagers, those who are created in the image of God, we mostly don't feel like we're the image of God. 
And the reality of that is true because of all the life hurts that we've encountered. All the hurts, all the broken relationships, all the disappointments, all the bad decisions, we don't feel like we're in the image of God. Now, perhaps you find yourself there today. Maybe you're actually not even on speaking terms with God because you think you don't measure up and you're struggling with a past that is absolutely filled with brokenness and bad decisions. So maybe you're giving in to thinking that you're too damaged. Then you can identify with the shepherds because that's exactly where they're at. This is for you, verse 11 says, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to restore you to God. You have been created in the image of God, therefore you are an imager and you are precious to God. Now tonight, I know recognizing in this auditorium, probably more than 90% of us have received Jesus already. We're restored imagers. We've been put back into relationship with God. But if you find yourself tonight in the place where you have not yet acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, I'm here to tell you, you are still made in the image of God. You are still precious to God. But what you are not is you are not yet restored. You're not yet forgiven of your sin. Well, this angel is uttering words that all of creation has longed to hear since the darkness of sin breached our world back in Genesis 3. And he's saying, this one who's come, this one is Christ the Lord, and he, God, has come back to dwell among us. And he will be called Emmanuel for that reason. So then the angel says, you want to know how you can recognize? Go with me to verse 12, church. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this angel is announcing a birth. And that in itself, you'd have to say, is a pretty good sign. Like there were no angels announcing my birth, at least none that my mom told me about. And I'm guessing there were no angels announcing your birth. But this one gets an angel to announce his birth. Now that's a pretty great sign in itself, but that's not what's compelling about this. The, the type of cloth that the baby is wrapped in, in the Greek language is very clear that they're swaddling cloths, which is strips of fabric, because we want babies to be bound up tight so that they feel secure and safe. So these swaddling cloths that are spoken of here, it binds the baby up tight, but that in itself is not even the sign. It's just saying, this is a really young child. This is a newborn, a baby that's in swaddling cloths. Here's the amazing part of the sign. This one's going to be found in a manger, meaning not in Bethlehem Memorial Hospital. The mangers that we have today in our nativity scenes, those are pretty sanitized. But if you've ever been next to a real manger, you would know that there's an aroma. It will leave a memory with you. There's a fragrance associated with real barn mangers. Mangers are dinner, dinner plates for animals. So they're feed troughs. So what are the odds of finding a newborn in a feed trough? In our family, in our world, in the last four weeks, we've had a newborn baby boy come into our world, and there's no way my daughter was going to put that baby in a feed trough. That's just not going to happen. So God's making it super obvious, and here's what should be so obvious to us. He's making it obvious because He wants them 
to investigate the truth. He wants them to check this out. And so the invitation that's been extended is go and look for yourself. Go and check this out, and you will find, the angel says. Now, the invitation is done. It's been delivered. The shining angel at this point draws himself up to full height and expands his wings and his arms because it's time to praise God for what God has done. And suddenly, we're told, the whole horizon goes on fire because the sky is filled with a multitude of angels rapidly spreading across the horizon, and they begin as the army of God Legion upon legion upon legion upon legion doing something remarkable. Verse 12, 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Uh, in a moment, this thunderous voice it reverberates as one all the way across the hillside, rushing up the hillside, echoing off the rock ledges, and the very ground under their feet begins to tremble with the aftershock of the sound waves. We're told that it happens suddenly, epiphanes, with God showing up without, throughout the Bible, you find it's always suddenly. It's always instantly, the instant arrival of God a multitude of heavenly hosts. Now, that's the armies of God, and they're surrounding on every side. John writes about this in the book of Revelation when he sees the host of heaven. He said, I saw and I looked, and there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands singing glory to God. If you're a guy, especially I would speak to you tonight, if you've ever struggled with praising God publicly, just look at these guys doing this. They're bigger, stronger, and faster than you, and they have no problem with their identity saying, praise God for what He has done. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And they're shouting forth this sound of triumph, and it echoes across the valley floor, and it rumbles like a thunderstorm in the summertime. A great roar of a waterfall is what Daniel describes it as, with one enormous voice. They're shouting glory to God. The very similar scene is seen in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah said, I looked and I saw God and I, I heard the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And he said what happened next was the threshold of heaven actually shook like an earthquake. Their voices resonated that loudly. And this overwhelming resonance tends to, throughout the Bible, drive humans to collapse. Here at this point in this story, the armies of the living God are echoing the most awesome statement that the first angel just made. I wonder if you've ever seen this before. The multitude is reinforcing what the first angel just said. They're actually resounding the invitation when they say, on earth, peace among men, verse 14, look at it very closely with me, on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. In other words, God's extending something to people who would receive it, and there's the problem. That verse causes a lot of people anxiety. A lot of people read that and say, with whom He is pleased. That means there's, there's a standard for this invitation. The bar is really high. Here's the problem, imagers. 
If we're separated from God, most of us do not feel that God is pleased with us. Like he doesn't really like me all that well. And so that statement you just read actually amplifies the anxiety. I promise you right now as you sit here tonight, there are people all over this planet who are stressing themselves out, trying to do enough righteous things to make God like them. They're doing works of righteousness. They're trying to earn their way before God that maybe God will like me enough to let me in one day. God loves you. He wants you restored to Him. It's not about works of righteousness that you can do. So if that's your thought, notice who this invitation is actually being extended to. It's being extended to the very individuals who already feel that they don't measure up. And God's extending the invitation to them that the relationship can be restored. So catch this. If you carry nothing else out the door with you tonight, carry this out the door with you in this thought. God being pleased with you, it actually begins with Jesus coming into your world. God's being pleased with us begins with Jesus entering into our world. So let's finish out the story here. These waves of praise, they're rolling over the hillside, and finally the voices begin to fade, and as fast as it came, the brilliant light vanishes. It's gone. And then crickets. If shepherds ever felt the darkness of night before, it's off the charts now. As the dilation of their eyes tries to readjust to the midnight sky, and under their breath are barely able to speak. Each shepherd is heard saying, did you see that? What do you mean did I see that? Of course I saw that. I mean, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. You can imagine if you had stood there, the, the reaction that you would have would be exactly the same, but it would be so breathless. Like, what do we do now? One of them says, let's go. Let's go check it out. Here's what I want you to catch because we get so caught up with the angels we get so caught up with the brilliant light. Have you ever noticed that the first invitation is extended to some lonely guys who are living on the outside fringe of society? To those guys, the living God invites them to join Him. Let's finish it. Verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So the shepherds have a choice, go to Bethlehem or go back to work. What do you choose? Well, we know exactly what they chose. They hear the invitation. And now they have to respond to the invitation. And so verse 16 says, they came in a hurry. And in my mind, I see these grizzled old faces of these shepherds collapsing before this manger with their weathered cheeks and the lines in their faces, which have known nothing but rejection and failure and disappointment. And they work in the bottom of the bottom of the bottom trades, just trying to make enough to stay warm. Those guys, 
Those guys are peering at a baby, tightly wrapped in swaddling cloth, and they're trying to tell the parents what they've just seen. Verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which they had been told about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. The word wondered here, it's way too polite in the English language. It, it actually, when it's translated properly, it means stunned. Everybody who heard it was shocked at what they were communicating. So these guys on the bottom of the social scale are chosen to preach of the King of Kings. Verse 19. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. So the final scene is they're climbing back up the hill, and they're talking about God when they go back to work. How do you go back to work after that? I have no idea. Here's what I want to do with you. Here's what I'm asking you to consider. I'm inviting you to imitate the shepherds tonight in one of three ways, no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum. First of all, if you're new to church or these things are new to you and you're not sure what to do with what you're hearing, here's what I challenge you to do. Investigate the truth of what you have heard because instantly the shepherds went and checked out what they've been told. Here's why. That... The God of the universe would condescend to come to this planet to save us is so astonishing. It has to be investigated. You have to investigate it so that you own it. You have to understand it for yourself because the magnitude of the commitment, it demands your time. So I, I would plead with you, please examine, search the Scriptures, do so, so that you do not become indifferent to these things, and then discover why so many people have put your, their hope in His name. That's where we started at. Look again, Matthew 12, 21, in His name the nations will put their hope. Ultimately, from what God has explained to us, every single person has to give an accounting to Him for what we did with this knowledge. The truth is God wants you to spend eternity with Him. He wants you. And you, as an imager of God, can know what it is to have complete restoration to God. You can be a restored imager. So I would invite you right now to surrender your life to the one who brings living hope. So let me ask you a question. Just do a little self-evaluation. Have you personally ever admitted to God that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior? And when you tell Him that, He won't be surprised. He's not surprised because we're all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Not too many people say amen after that one, but I'll give you the chance. Amen? amen. We are. Maybe that's news to you. We're all sinners, we know that. We all fall short of the glory of God. So have you ever admitted that? Here's what's very clear in the Bible. The Bible says, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the name, on the character, on the authority, if you will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He came for you, that He died for you, and that He was raised back to life on the third day, I would challenge you to surrender your life to Him. 
And in response, God expects that you would have a reaction, and your reaction would be this expectation that you would begin making life decisions that reflects your choice. To help you tonight when you leave, there's Bibles out in the atrium. You're free to take a Bible with you if you need one. We have lots of them that we've stacked. Feel free. Don't hesitate. Investigate these things. Lastly, if you're already a believer, you notice what the shepherds did. They began blazing it to everyone. They were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were bold. So I challenge you if you're a believer, be bold when you go to work. Be bold around your family. Talk to them about the great things that God has done for you. Let them know that you know who the living hope is. Good with that? Let's pray about that. Father, I thank You for every single person who is here that has heard Your Word, and now they have to do something with it. And that's what You expect of every one of us. So we offer up this time that we've just used, and we ask that You would use it to bless it for the sake of Your kingdom. I pray, Father, that as we light these candles now and as we sing and we actually express the reality of You coming to this planet, that it's more than just words on a page that the song actually comes from our heart and that it would be reflected in the things that we do even today, tonight, this week. Use us, use us for your kingdom to expand the kingdom that Jesus would be glorified in whose name that we pray and all God's people said.